When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is TJ2, the deuce. What's up? There we go. And our storyteller today, Will the Thrill. Hello. That's me mixing a cocktail for today's occasion. <laughs> you didn't want to hit us with a yeah boy or something? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Just focusing on my, my mixture for today, which we will dive into shortly. Yeah, just so to cover the things that sucked this week, both Cloris Leachman and Cicely Tyson died. <sighs> yeah. Cloris Leachman. And then as we're recording this uh, on uh, January the 30th, I think, yep. I got really I got really scared this morning because Chris Christopherson's name was trending. Oh, man. So was Mike. But Mike. it turns out he, he just he has officially retired from performing. Oh, because hmm. after 112 years, he's given right. up. <laughs> Is that going to be like a Billy Joel retirement? Like, I'm retired. OK, I'm going to do this last concert. OK, now I'm retired. Okay, now I got this concert. Now the retirement tour. Okay, but I'm okay, but I swear I'm only doing just this last album. This is yeah. this is it. Okay, then I'm retiring. I think if you're if you're Chris Christopherson and there are actually pictures of you playing a guitar on, on like cave paintings and stuff, I think we'll give you a flyer if you if you feel like it's time to put your feet up and do and do a little less. But I'm yeah. gonna lump him into the Chuck Norris category. I don't think Death wants to approach him about the end. Mm-mm. Yeah, he's gonna let that one go as long as he can. Yeah, well, today's topic, unfortunately, death called early for this gent, and yeah, I have a lot of tough men in my life. You know, you guys know that, you know, the deuce is my brother, so I've known him all my life because I'm the baby of the family, and I've only seen him cry one time, and that was when uh, his grandmother passed. Uh, Will, I have seen cry a couple times, but... Never when it came to a celebrity passing, and this is, other than Robin Williams, the only person that has passed in the 17 years we've been together that I ever saw him close to tears. This was a tough one for me. It was. And um, if you remember our draft, when I first saw the list, that was my, I mean, LD, you saw it. I picked him right out of the right out of the gate um i put him on the list specifically so you would have to do him but it was one of those moments where i was just drawn to it i looked at i said adam yauk that's it we're done um and many of you know the works of mr yauk um many of you know him by his monk here (laughs) 
as LD likes put it, MCA. Uh, and I got to tell you guys, I am so excited to do this series. Uh, like LD said, was tremendously sad when he passed. There's a lot here, but it was one of those cases where, you know, when you do something and you say, this is the decision I'm making in the moment and I hope it works out. Yeah. I think everyone can relate to that. Well, I was hoping that I would land on a heavy hitter with Adam Yauk, and I took this leap of faith by saying, that's my pick, number one, I'm going for it. This, ladies and gentlemen, was a called shot home run. I knew a little bit about Adam Yauk. I knew he was a member of the Beastie Boys, but I think it's a testament to your life when being a Beastie Boy is just one interesting thing about you. And I actually love him for almost a completely different reason. Who, Adam Yauk? Yeah. 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 And we'll, I'm, we'll get to that much later. But... Oh, yeah. It's kind of daunting when I first started writing this script because I realized we had a, a series and a certain number of parts. And my realization was, oh, crap, I have to fit it in this many parts. So that's become a bit of a chore when adding content and taking things out. And in a way, this is going to unfold a lot like a Christopher Nolan script. There's no fat. Everything you hear has relevance. Every person has a part to play and it may not even play out until this episode or the next episode or the episode after that so you're gonna have to keep track of names and the people that come in and out of adam's life because they do come back and they all have a part to play which is going to be a lot of fun so it brings up the question what makes someone a heavy hitter well tj i know that you did uh, your first our first series on heavy hitters on eddie van halen and i think that's goes without saying he sure. was tremendously talented, but more than that, he was transcendent. Eddie Van Halen, I think we can all agree, left music better than the way he found it. Considerably, yes. And I think in many ways he left the world better than when he entered it. <laughs> and if that's the measure by which we judge a heavy hitter, Adam Yauch certainly belongs in this pantheon. Now, I'm also excited for a few more reasons, and they're personal. One is that finally, I get to issue a language warning for one of my series. I'm so happy about this. Okay, so yeah. here's where I step in. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've got little ears that are around you, this is not the series for them. No. Absolutely not. Now, we did, I know, take great strides in making sure that... Some of it was toned down, but like attempting to put WAP onto the radio, it's probably a futile exercise. So with that, we're going to issue a parental warning. So make sure that there are no little ears. Also, another caveat to this is that uh, there are some quotes here and there are some alternative titles for albums that we <laughs> attempted to clean up as much as possible but best. it's the beastie boys guys so from yep. now on and, and one of them and one of them is and one of one of them just kind of is what it is and there's yeah. not much you can do to neuter it yeah unfortunately. yeah yeah so, so yeah. with that just you guys have been warned that this is not the most appropriate episode for probably anyone under the age of 35 have um i'm just trying to wonder have i done one yet that didn't come with a language warning? uh not an official language warning yeah yeah and I, I know with this artist the lyrics are actually a concern for the language warning as well so when we play a song 
we have a warning for that too. So, and also I finally, and this goes along with language warning, another warning, I finally have debauchery and antics to cover with one of my artists. I'm so happy. What are you talking about? Neil Peart read books. That's illegal know, right? in some places. Yeah, uh, that's the, been the extent. Of- hey, I was, he, I was going to say. I mean, he he visited museums and was an avid reader. I mean, that was pretty yeah. badass. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. But you guys are talking about people running naked through hotels and renting tanks for concerts and. I believe the term from the Eddie Van Halen episode, correct me, TJ, if I'm wrong, was a river of penicillin ran through the band. Yes, yes. So uh, we had, uh, and, and we had, and and of course, in the Eddie Van Halen episode, we also had wall penis. Which I'm glad you brought up. We, we will get to that in our series because uh, that will be relevant. Again, hang on to that nugget. It's coming back. Wow. <laughs> Hold on to your nugget. Yay! <laughs> I, I finally get Woo-hoo. to contribute to the antics pile. Again, the worst thing Neil Peart did was read a Jack London book out of order when he was on tour. So right. I touch my pearls. I know. So I'm very happy to do that for that reason. Also, I'm getting to cover a band and an artist I've known my entire life. And I know people throw that term around, but chronologically, it makes sense. As you'll see, they started recording music from around the time I was born and did so straight up and you know, until the point where unfortunately Adam Yauch has, has left us. Speaking of Adam Yauch, I think it's safe to put everybody in the world in one of two categories. Those who have a favorite Beastie Boys song and those who have never heard the Beastie Boys. Do we agree? Probably. There, there's no middle ground. And I would bet if you were to go up to anyone on the street and say, what is your favorite Beastie Boys song? Girls. See, there we go. But I can say that instantly you could name a second, right? Check it out. There you go. Body moving. Yep, the list Five goes on. for your right. Oh, gosh. We just watched, we, we went on a, a rabbit hole last Yeah, night. we did and watched a whole bunch of videos. It was a lot of fun. My point is that the Beastie Boys are probably one of the most well-known musical acts of all time. I think that's safe to say. As far as pervading pop culture, counterculture, internationally, Everyone knows who the Beastie Boys are. And they're kind of like the Pringles of music. You know, you can't have just one. I don't think I've spoken to anyone who said, hey, you know, that uh, Hey Ladies tune, it works. I'm good. Don't need any more. No, you're going to listen to another song, another song. And like LD pointed out, top of your head, you could probably name, what, two or three at least? Bare minimum. So I am also going to issue a listener's guide here because there could be some confusion. As I mentioned, names and people are going to be important. And those of you who may be up on your Beastie Boys lore know that the core trio is made up of two Adams and a Mike. So I'm going to avoid, you know, surname. I'm sorry, I'm going to avoid standard names as much as possible because that could get confusing. So you may hear the members of the Beastie Boys referred to in any one of these following categories. Last name, Horowitz, Yauk, Diamond. Pretty definitive. Also their monikers, Ad-Rock, Mike D, MCA. I may, for the sake of brevity, shorten some of those to Rock, D, or MCA. So you'll just have to kind of keep up. I will do my best to, to delineate them, but it can be a little confusing. Which one looks like Booger? MCA. Okay. Yeah, at least during the, the 80s he did. So as I mentioned, the Beastie Boys have certainly a gravitas to them. Their music, their videos, their behavior. However, I'm going to put forth an argument here. There is no band, then or now, that has achieved what the Beastie Boys have achieved culturally 
and musically. That makes the band a series of heady hitters. And at the center of this band was Adam Young. He was really the heart and soul of the Beastie Boys outfit. A band who would go to sell over 40 million albums worldwide. That's their career. 40 mil. John Parlis of the New York Times wrote this quote, and I think it's the greatest way to sum up the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys went to garner admiration and influence with productions that kept coming up with surprises, including, eventually, the rappers playing their own instruments again, and with rhymes that would mingle humor, boasting, and increasing idealism. Even when the Beastie Boys were treated as a joke, it was a joke they would be in on for decades to come. Good summary. I do think, however, it misses one major point, and that is the quiet leader of the group who was, according to all my research, interviews, he was the centerpiece. Adam Yauch was the driving force behind the Beastie Boys. And that led to musical breakthroughs, artistic ventures, and impact really on a global scale. Without Yauch, the Beastie Boys have may never even existed. They may have been a small, confined performing act to a very limited slice of counterculture. We may break every once in a while to do a fun fact. Can I get one? Fun fact. Thank you. Fun fact. There we go. But I'll be honest with you guys, putting this together, I realize this entire episode is one giant fun fact after another. Fun fact. <laughs> and so, like I said, I picked Adam Yauk. Couldn't be happier than I did. I've poured my signature cocktail, which is a brass monkey, which those of you playing along at home consists of light rum, vodka, orange juice, Galliano, or in the case of me trying to get it out of my liquor cupboard, banana liqueur. Because I've had it since the Amy Winehouse episode and it doesn't get any better. It's actually, this is uh, this is how Will keeps me married to him. Banana liqueur? No, it's brass it's monkey. Brass monkey. It's got <laughs> vitamin C. I, I will never have scurvy. And so we've got our cocktails. We've got a little preface. Let's swing for those fences. Again, this was a home run hit. Let's see how much more is under the surface for one loan, B-S-T-I-E. Let's take a look at the cornerstone, the spiritual core, and the undeniable patriarch of the three MCs from NYC. Born and bred Brooklyn in the USA, my favorite beastie boy, Adam Nathaniel Yauch. Born August 5th, 1964, Adam was the only child of Francis and Noel Yauk. Francis worked as a public school administrator in Brooklyn and Noel as an architect. Now, he was an architect by trade, but Noel had a very distinct artistic side. He had actually moved to New York in the 40s to study abstract painting. So he was an artist. He even studied with the Artists League, which was a prominent movement in New York with notable instructors, including Morris Cantor and Steve Wheeler, both of who were very prominent in that abstract movement in New York at the time. And it was during the 1950s that Noel took a job, sorry, let me go back. Noel took his artistic skill and applied them to becoming an architect. Now, it's presumed that he did this to sort of pay the bills. He was getting married, he had a family forming, so he used his drawing skill as an architect to provide for the family. And it was during this time, actually, that he was work studying as a painter that he had met Francis. She was also a painter. So you have two artists. They marry. Francis works in the public school sector. So their son, Adam, was raised in a definitive artistic household. Now, a lot of the people will say that the Beastie Boys are Jewish. 
It's interesting because Adam's mother was Jewish, but his father was Catholic. So by, I think Judaism is traced through the mother's lineage, if I'm not mistaken. So by birth, Adam Yauch can claim Judaism as his primary religion, but for the most part, his household was secular. Hmm. So he was raised in a largely non-religious artistic environment. Both his parents worked, and as a result, he lived what would be called a very comfortable middle-class life in Brooklyn Heights, which is just across the East River from Manhattan. It's actually a little further south than where my sister lives currently in Williamsburg. And it was appropriate that someone like Adam was growing up during a renaissance. The 1960s actually marked the movement of the Brownstone Revival period in Brooklyn. In the 40s and 50s, there were a number of construction projects that were meant to make room for the now BQE, Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and they started gutting a lot of buildings in that area, taking them out, and it was viewed as a very dark time. So this was sort of the, the resurgence of that. So he was born at this period where the brownstones were being rebuilt, the neighborhoods were being reformed, and Yauk actually spent most of his young days at Palmetto Park a playground in Brooklyn. There, his father Noel taught him how to ride a bicycle. Adam also played basketball. He would meet the neighborhood kids, and he developed a reputation as being a little bit of a prankster. One of his longtime friends, Matthew Allison, actually said, if there was one word to describe Adam, it was evolved. He always took things further to a level you never expected. And this started with the usual prank tropes, you know, toilet paper, egging, little jokes on the kids here and there. But Yauk's ingenuity and curiosity knew no bounds. He was always interested in how things worked. This included his toys, games, electronics he could get his hands on, and eventually it would span to people, cultures, and social circles. As a child, Yauk devised an explosive device after watching Wile E. Coyote in a Roadrunner cartoon. The end result was he actually blew up the fence behind the Yauk home in Brooklyn. Wow. So if the explosive if the explosive worked, I'm going to have to guess he didn't order any parts from Acme. I'm guessing he did not, but he was able to watch a cartoon and build an incendiary device. So I think that does show an evolved mind, correct? Later on, fellow Beastie Boy Adam Horowitz would describe Yauk as a New York kid with just enough crazy. So I think that sets the stage very nicely. Yauk's musical education came as most from his parents. At least it started that way. This was almost extensively the Beatles catalog. And Yauk grew up with two favorite albums, which included Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper. Those were his two main ones. They stoked his interest in music, but he had that ear to listen to think, okay, how is this made? How do these instruments come together? And the Beatles were, of course, using on those albums some very, I believe, experimental techniques, no? Correct. Weird recordings and tape loopings and all that stuff. And 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 they were, I want to say, Sergeant Pepper especially, Mark, one of the first times that an artist sort of used, and, and this really figures if you think about what the Beastie Boys end up doing uh, yeah. down the line, using the studio itself almost as an instrument. Oh, yes, absolutely. And that will come into play later. It absolutely will. From there, Yauk learned about music the same way his fellow Beastie Boys and a lot of New Yorkers did on the streets. Every single block was different. New York was a very diverse place. You had punk, you had new wave, you had reggae, you had rap, you had salsa, you had jazz. They were exposed to artists like Grandmaster Flash, Curtis Blow, Spoonie G. You'd walk into a record store and hear one thing. You'd get on the subway and someone would have a boombox. So he was just absorbing all this music from really all around him, all through Brooklyn, Manhattan, 
and the other parts of New York. He attended the Elizabeth Seeger School of the Arts, which is located in Tribeca, and then he would go on to attend Edward R. Murrow High School in Brooklyn, which is actually still to this day known for music and theater. So again, you've got a guy just seeped in the arts completely. I'm sorry, time out real quick. Yeah. I find it interesting that uh, that the Edward R. Murrow School is for, for, for performing arts. Well, it is. <laughs> That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's just the the name doesn't seem to match with <laughs> well, with its specialty. He may have just put his name on it and given money. I don't know. It's entirely possible. It was around his high school years that Yauk actually started wanting to play music. He taught himself the electric bass, so he just picked one up and started playing. All he knew is he wanted to be in a band. Didn't know where. Didn't know how. But he said, "I'm going to learn this thing." At this time, okay, so I this is one of my favorite movies, and it gets overlooked a lot. Our LD, you may, I don't think you are, but TJ, you might know the film After Hours. Now, not, that, not now, familiar, I don't think. I okay. have wandered in after a day of work, and you're <laughs> watching it, because thank God for HBO, because they have like 90% of the content we watch. This is true. So, yeah, but you said it was a movie that wouldn't happen today because of all the technology that we have. Because of cell phones, yeah. So uh, it is a dark comedy by Martin Scorsese, and the point is it's shot primarily in a very dramatized version of lower New York, particularly the Lower East Side, the village, which those of you who know New York, because I grew up in this area, I experienced this, you know, pretty much firsthand. In the 80s, you didn't go to the village. You didn't go to Lower Manhattan unless you were looking for something not good. If, If you went to Alphabet City, you were looking for drugs. If you went to the Lower East Side, you were probably looking for a sex worker. So the reason I bring up that movie is it does paint an accurate, again, dramatized version, but accurate picture of what life was like there versus the rest of Manhattan. Because in the film, Griffin Dunn plays a well-to-do broker. He works in Midtown. He goes down to this area to see a girl. And it's totally different from the world he knows. It's trash piled up on the street, police sirens going, you know, people with multiple locks in those bars on their doors. It also had an artistic community to it. A lot of people would rent lofts cheap and they'd paint and do art. There were also a lot of clubs in that area that were more underground. They were like punk clubs. So that's where Yauk was actually drawn to. He would actually go out to these shows in these sort of rough, off-the-beaten-path clubs, and he'd wear his standard, you know, black trench coat, combat boots, and he would go see a lot of punk music. This was very different from... Manhattan's Upper West Side. And I'm sure you know, LD, for living in New York, what that difference is going to be. Up there, it was all about the Hayden Planetarium, the museum, Pink Floyd, laser light shows. And that was the very musical culture that Yauk was trying to get away from. And he and his peers would go to clubs like CBGB. Yeah. And I've been to CBGB. Uh, Webster Hall. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Do you know how, okay. I used to, I used to drink gasp and, and shock but Webster Hall would be the place where I would, let's just say, imbibe my fair share of alcohol while listening to the same exact 50 tracks from the 1980s on the main floor. Yeah. Webster Hall was such an experience because there were, I think, eight different rooms that you could go into. It was and huge. Like, the yeah. main hall was playing... Um, the 1980s music and then you go to like an upper you go to like a back staircase up top and they'd be playing like latin stuff but it was a smaller Mm -hmm. room and then you go somewhere else and they'd be playing like metal yep but it was like you could go to webster hall for like any kind of experience and it was probably one of my favorite places to go other than the parlor 
when I lived in New York, which was, I think, on 81st and something, but mm -hmm. they had the best karaoke. <laughs> so if you want to go karaoke, that's where you went. But Webster Hall was an experience. I, I adored Webster Hall. So that sums up Adam Yauch's sort of youth. He would go to these clubs and see all kinds of music. Some of them were very eclectic. They had places like we, like Webster Hall. Uh, Danceteria was another one who would have bands and dance music and a little bit of everything. So you can see how Yauk was already getting into sort of this counterculture movement in New York, along with one other punk kid from the Upper West Side, and his name was Michael Lewis Diamond. Diamond the was plumber. <laughs> yes, I'm Mike Diamond, and my plumber will smell good. <laughs> For those of you who don't live in California, I don't know. Is that a, a nationwide know, thing? Is it, oh. Do you guys have Mike, Mike Diamond, the plumber? We do not. Okay. okay. That might be uh, a, a colloquial. So, so to dispel two rumors with one uh, in, in one go here, no, he's not connected to the plumbing company, and no, he is not related to Screech, which actually came up in several interviews. People thought he was like Screech's cousin or whatever. No, diff different Diamond family. Which, by the way, we just found out that he has stage four cancer, so... Screech, right? Screech, yeah. yeah. Not oh, Mike, wow. Not Mike Diamond. Yeah. So yeah. we hope the best for him. Yeah, Jesus, tough. <sighs> so getting back to the story here, Michael Lewis Diamond was born November 20th, 1965. He is a Scorpio, and I bring that up because he loves to remind us of that in song. <laughs> he says it quite often. He grew up on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Fancy. Very she-she, yes, where John Lennon lived. Not in the yes. same building, but same area. His father was an art dealer, and his mother was an interior designer and art collector. So I think he's sense a pattern here. He attended the Walden School, which is a very prominent art school, and followed that up with St. Anne's Art School in Brooklyn. So you have, again, private art schooling. These guys are pretty well, well off, I'd say. They're smart. They're smart. And, and fancy. So you have two kids artistically raised, growing up in different parts of New York, and largely left, you know, I don't want to say to their own devices, but their parents pretty much let them do what they wanted. They were like, get your schoolwork done, you can go out, just, you know, don't do anything dangerous. Diamond did have two brothers, though. So unlike Yauk, he was not an only child, and his primary music influence, uh, two of them actually came from the Jackson 5 and The Clash. Uh, Diamond grew up listening to a lot of Motown and a lot of punk, and he loved punk. So he would usually get dressed up in his typical punk attire and kind of have to run to the subway uh, on the Upper West Side because the people at the planetarium, these are old classic rock bands, would yell at him and say, hey, F you, you, F word for a British cigarette. Yes. Yes. Because I don't want to use that word. Now, bear in mind something this about the punk scene. The punk scene in New York was, again, underground, but I don't know if you all knew this a lot of the fashion items were actually designed with self-defense in mind. Really? Yeah. The chains, the spiked items, uh, because they would be targets. And also, you're going to a part of town where if a fight breaks out, the cops aren't showing up to break it up. You're largely on your own. So Diamond was obviously wise to this, and he wouldn't go out, you know, by himself. Uh, he would travel with friends you know the mainstays of that would be two guys that he actually started a band with we'll get to that in a moment named john barry who was a guitar player and jeremy chatan who played bass they also traveled with a group that they nicknamed the bag ladies and these were several young women who would have anything in their bags that you needed during the course of the night so they'd ask for a band-aid or whatever and one of them would inevitably have it i feel like i would have been a part of that group. the bag ladies yes 
Here are some, uh, there, there were a lot in this group, but I'm going to bring up some notable names. And they are Jill Cuniff, Gabby Glazer, and Kate Schellenbach. Ring any bells? Yeah. Nope. Maybe if I told you the name of their band, Luscious Jackson. Ah, yeah. okay. These were the ladies who founded Luscious Jackson. And they hung out with Mike V. And, 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 yeah. and, and they, they were his bag ladies? They were, quote, the bag ladies, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Schellenbach is going to have a bigger role to play. We're going to get to her in a moment. In 1979, Mike formed a band with his cohorts. This included, of course, John Barry, Jeremy Chetan. And if you guys know Kate Schellenbach, she was, of course, the drummer for Luscious Jackson. She took up the drums. And Diamond, who played drums, sort of relinquished the role to her. And I'll go back. Diamond, who played drums, relinquished the role to Kate and took up vocals, but he was reluctant to do so. So this is in 1979. Around 1980... Diamond and his group of friends went out to see a well-known punk band. Maybe you've heard of them called the Bad Brains. I have heard of them. Yes, they're considered the grandpappies of hardcore punk. They were playing at the Botany Talk House. The crowd was decidedly older, and they really felt out of place, except for one kid they saw in the corner. Trench coat, combat boots. It was Adam Yauch. At the time, Diamond was actually a fairly shy kid, so it was actually John Barry who went up to Yauk, and they started talking. Mike D comes over, they start talking some more, and they exchange numbers and become friends. Diamond and Yauk would hang out together, they would listen to the records they have, and they would seriously talk about, we should do this, you know, we, we could do this. And they were referring to punk, of course. So it was at this time that Diamond already had this band, The Young Aborigines, there was really no room in the lineup, so Yauk became what they described as a one-man tech crew. He knew how every instrument worked. He would also sew the band patches that they made onto items. So he would create patches and sew them onto clothing. And- so he was a seamstress. And, and roadie and tech advisor. Mm-hmm. He would also use a soldering gun to fix amps and mics. And he still had his penchant for explosives. He would actually take 70s flash bulbs and set them up so they would burst into an explosion uh, <laughs> while they played. Uh, this often created just a blinding flash of light. So you might say they were blinded by the light. And there you have it, There's a Manfred Man Earth Band. Manfred Man's Earth Band mandated reference. The federally mandated. <laughs> Manfred Man's Earth Band, reference of the podcast, has been, satis- has been satisfied. There it is. But uh, all kidding aside, he did design pyrotechnics. So, yeah, Didn't, a little bit Weren't of old school pyrotechnics like, like super primitive to the point of they would just put gunpowder in light bulbs and stuff? And that, I mean, that's what he did. He blew up light bulbs. Yeah. So, yeah. pretty much. But yeah. I mean, I think they would actually, they, they would actually somehow put gunpowder or, or at a bare minimum, black powder to have it burn. inside. In, inside light bulbs and of course they, they naturally heat up and at a certain point they would just explode <laughs> you do yeah, that yeah. well that's what Yauk did again he blew up a fence when he was a kid so this is not really a shock to anybody I hate to interrupt but we do have to take a short commercial break to pay some bills and we will be right back if you look for it every day has cause for celebration celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023, where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. 
And we're back. Great. Let's get back to Adam Yauk. On top of electronics and music and pyrotechnics, Yauk also had an interest in his neighborhood. Now, LD will know this for sure. Disaster in New York in 1979, Three Mile Island. Yep. Which led to a series of protests throughout the city about no nukes. And Yauk actually took part in a number of these protests. So you have a little budding activist here on top of, like you said, road crew, seamstress, bass player, uh, you know, you name it, he kind of did it. The concept of the Beastie Boys was still pretty far away. On a daily basis, Yauk would go to Diamond and pressure him to form a, quote, side band so he could be part of it. This would not come into effect until a fateful concert in February of 1981. The Peppermint Lounge, New York City, is packed to see Black Flag. Oh, yep. okay. Yauk is in attendance. The bag ladies are in attendance. This is the show that they largely say made Mike D and Yauk say, okay, this is what we want to do. We're going to run with this. They didn't know it at the time, but also at that show, they would find out years later, was Adam Keith Horowitz. The king. The king at rock. He was born on Halloween, 1966. Now, if you do the math, you may figure out by this point, he's only 15 years old. Not legal. Nope, but I don't think anyone cared. The location of Horowitz's birth is actually still debated. I, I found, again, I don't have a birth certificate, so I can't prove this, but I found an equal number of sources saying he was born in Manhattan and those who say he was actually born in New Jersey. So I don't know the answer. Uh, if you want to weigh in, Rock and Roll Heaven podcast, let us know if you have a copy of Adam Horowitz's birth certificate. I don't know. Uh, allegedly, he was, but he was raised in Manhattan. That was undeniable. But his birthday is Halloween. It's Halloween, yep. Mm-hmm. So it's it's actually speculated that his mother was visiting in New Jersey while she was pregnant, went into labor, and they delivered him in New Jersey, but they don't don't know for sure. But he does claim to this day he is from Manhattan, and I say his upbringing would bespeak that. Uh, Adam was the son of a playwright named Israel Horowitz, who wrote 50 produced plays, including... Wow. The award-winning Park Your Car in Harvard Yard. What? Yep. And his mother was Doris Keefe, which is interesting because his father-in-law was Donovan. Like Mellow Yellow? The same. Like Mellow Yellow? Correct, yep, was his father-in-law. Quite right. Quite right. He had one sister, Rachel, and a brother, Matthew. He grew up on Park Avenue in Manhattan. So again, you're not talking about lousy digs here. These guys are doing pretty well. He was in an artistic household. He explored music on his own. The Horowitz family actually had a spare bedroom that they would often rent out. So Horowitz got pretty used to people coming and going and just being in his place and not being in his place. Uh, there's a story in the Beastie Boys book, which talks about one night, uh, Adam gets up and he sees a complete stranger standing in the living room. His mother walks in, sees this person, gets them a Coke and a slice of cake, some blankets and a pillow and says, make yourself comfortable on the couch. Well, the next day, the stranger was gone, along with $40 and a Walkman. Aww. Now, the Walkman was not Adam's, even though there's an entire chapter in the Beastie Boys book about him carrying a Walkman and making mixtapes. He did an entire chapter on this. The Walkman was actually property of one David Parsons. Parsons owned a record shop called Rat Cage Records, which was located on Avenue A. He and his partner, Kathy, owned it at the time. And they would actually stay frequently at uh, what I'll call Shea Horowitz. So they would crash with them. It was a basement level record shop. 
and it had every type of music you can imagine, particularly the offbeat stuff. The cage also had a rudimentary recording space, so new artists could come in, record material in the store, and in theory have a place to sell their material. So needless to say, Horowitz would go there quite often, and it would eventually become a magnet for the Beastie Boys. Getting back to them, we are going now to the Peppermint Lounge, so you've got all three members of the Beastie Boys in one place. This Black Flag show pushed everything over the edge. It was also attended by two other people you may know, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon. Sonic Youth. Founders of Sonic Youth. They were also at the show. So a lot came out of this one show in 1981. It's pretty amazing. As if by some just kind of, you know, it was meant to be. At this time, Jeremy Shatan said he was leaving the Young Aborigines, which was Diamond's band, and Shatan played bass. Yauk played bass. There you go. And they had a drummer with Kate Schellenbach. So the idea of a side band was scrapped and they just kind of took the existing band and morphed it into the Beastie Boys. So two fun facts that you probably didn't know. Fun fact! Beastie Boys is actually an anagram. Okay. Wow. Beasties is boys entering anarchistic states towards internal excellence. That's just made up. It, it was, and you, the Beastie you, Boys, you just, yes. You just, it's a, what is it? It's a nanogram? Or anagram, a, yeah. No, 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 no. It's like when you backwards engineer. Oh, it's saying backwards and forwards? No, no, no. no. palindrome. No, not a palindrome. It's when you have the word and then you make up the words it means later, whereas like scuba is, they had all the words. Self-contained. Yeah. Yeah. Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Yeah, they, they, they came. The nanogram. Scuba. It's like a backwards anagram, a nanogram, a backwards anagram, whatever. There are words. They are you that high? Up. That's not. I feel like you're, are you high? I feel like you're high. It's like a backward, it's a backwards anagram palindrome thingy. <laughs> bananagram. There's a word for it. I'm gonna it's a bananagram. It. Like, waste. So needless to say, LD is 100% correct. And the members of the Beastie Boys came out and said, yeah, we put it together. It made no sense. I'm good. I'm looking up the word. You are looking up the word? Okay. I'm like, what? acrostic an acrostic we think but it's there's a difference between an anagram and whatever the heck i'm talking about because an anagram is made out of the words that it means so like nasa scuba and then there are other words that are like we're gonna make this mean something out of the word so like beastie boys and they're like what could this mean and then they make the thing up so it's a fake anagram well, it, it doesn't make sense for a number of reasons. One is, you're right, it's just formed out of nothing. And the other is they're the Beastie Boys and their first drummer was a girl. Ah. So, right. kind, of, kind of like the Scott Pilgrim joke of, you know, they have a girl drummer, yet in the film, every band every has band. a female drummer. Nonetheless, you have your Beastie Boys. And again, you've got the lineup. You've got Mike D, you got Adam Yauch, you still have John Barry, and you have Kate Schoenbach. Speaking of John Barry, his home actually doubled as their practice space. The loft was located at the corner of 100th and Broadway, and they would play after school until John's father would come home and yell, and I quote, turn that effing shit down. That pretty much put it into practice. As an alternative, Yauk's parents would let them play at their home, where they could either play in Adam's bedroom or, during the summer months, up on the roof. In a later interview, Michael Diamond actually said, I can't believe they put up with us. God bless them for doing that. And we're about to get into a song here. And so, but if they, if they um, played on the roof, that, then, you know, the, the good part about that is whatever thieving drifter was staying in the house could help them take their equipment off. Well, well that, that was at the Horowitz home. That wasn't at the outcome. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry, <laughs> my bad. Yes, I, I like the idea. Yeah. So they knew they needed a demo. 
And Yauk figured, hey, I know these guys. They have a Tascam Porta Studio, as they called it, which was basically a four-track recorder. Let's have them come over and record a few songs. So let's hear one of those songs. This one comes to you as one of the early, one of the earliest Beastie Boys recordings. We're gonna listen to Riot Fight. Riot Fight. Wait, that was a fall. And that's the whole song. All righty. <laughs> All 31 seconds. That was great. That was yeah. interesting. Yeah, well, these, these are the roots, guys. You got to go back to the, to the start here. The first official Beastie Boys gig was played on Adam Yauk's 17th birthday, August 5th, 1981. The chosen venue was, in fact, the Berry Loft, located at 100th and Broadway. They invited friends, family, and also Dave Parsons, who owned, as I mentioned, the Rat Cage. At the end of this first live show, Dave Parsons actually proposed that they record an actual album, and he offered the studio at Rat Cage to do it. So the band had at least a demo in place with a few songs. They were working on an album, and they had done one live gig. <laughs> at this point, the group's drummer, Kate Schellenbach, summed it up by saying, whereas other bands just as awful as the Beastie Boys would actually, <laughs> would actually believe they were good, for Mike and Adam, the whole point was to be terrible and admit it. So I think it's hilarious. <laughs> That's great for just shooting to be crap. Yep, aiming for, aiming for the bottom. By 1982, the Beastie Boys would piece together their first album at Ratcage Studios. Uh, in fact, Dave Parsons would go out of his way to let the band record there. He'd often keep the place open until as late as 4 a.m. Uh, so they could do what they needed to do. It was clear, though, that Parsons wasn't the best engineer. So he didn't have that. But they did have Adam Yauk who suggests different ports and in inputs for the guitar and the bass, which would eliminate a lot of the ambient noise that they got in their previous recordings. However, despite Parsons' inability to be an engineer, he did perform a small miracle that may have saved the band altogether. As I mentioned, he was very gracious with the studio. Apparently, this was a trend for him. Sadly, however, he had business issues. After a recording session in the wee hours of the morning, Parsons called the Beastie Boys to let them know that he had lost the lease for the rat cage. Oh, no. People had arrived essentially on site to take everything out, all the inventory. In a last-ditch effort, he grabbed the, the tape for the stuff they recorded, and he offered to mix it in his small village apartment. Now, for those of you who have never lived in New York, small apartment has a whole new meaning. Oh my God, yes. Especially in the village. It's a it's it's about the size of the room that we're sitting in right now. Yeah. Probably. It's and that's like with your bathroom <laughs> and you guys understand, like I could in our in the pod loft, I can pretty much lay on the floor and touch the other side of the wall. So mm -hmm. it's not much bigger than that. But like I've lived in some small places in 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 new york very small apartments in new york yeah they have places where you can what is the saying goes sit on the toilet open the window and answer the door all at the same time yep yeah that is accurate love that 
I really try not to answer the door when I'm on the toilet. Oh, uh, no, I, it, it, I think it's to put things into context. So, sure. needless to say, Parsons gets these tapes out. They cram into this tiny apartment in the village, and these recordings become the first pieces of what will be the Beastie Boys' first studio EP, Pollywog Stew. And I'm going to treat you now to a song from Pollywog Stew. This was recorded and released on the EP. Here is A Grade Mojo. Worst thing we've ever listened to, and we listen to Cobwebs and Strange. So there is a, a grade on Mojo. We, correct title. We listen. We listen to Cob. We listen to Cobwebs and Strange, and a song from Van Halen Three. And I happen to agree with you. That might be worse than these. Were. I well, mean, look. I promise, kids, they get better. They, they do. Yeah, they do get better. But that was that was the equivalent of listening to Eruption. It was like listening to Eruption if Eruption sucked. <laughs> if Eruption wasn't very good at all. If, eru- if Eruption wasn't uh, what Eruption is, then maybe it would be what that was. I'm trying to do a good balance of like, what's it's, it's like the difference between Kermit the Frog and Oscar the Grouch. One is loving and people look up to him and the other lives in a trash can. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I would say it's the difference between chocolate pudding and a turd. But uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> no, because even then they're they're both the same color. <laughs> well, that was a grade on Mojo, folks, and uh, okay. there you have it. That song, uh, I'll spare you the rest of the recordings, but uh, other songs like Michelle's Farm and Transit Cop actually got played on local radio. One of those stations was WNYU. 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 <laughs> now. The Beastie Boys would play gigs when they could, and sometimes they even required an opening act. Now, one of the other fateful events that came out of that Black Flag show was Horowitz, along with Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon, said, we're going to form a band. And they formed The Young and the Useless. So he started this band and actually became an opening act for the Beastie Boys. Now, it's rumored that Horowitz would continually approach Yauk and Diamond and ask if he could join their band. Because who wouldn't want to sign up with what we just heard? Exactly. Who doesn't want more of that? Suffice to say, the opportunity would present itself. In 1982, John Barry would quit the Beastie Boys, so they needed a guitar player, 
In steps Adam Horowitz at age 16. Oof. Yep. Horowitz actually mentioned that the only Beatles album he had growing up was Rubber Soul. Yauk's response to this was purchasing Horowitz every other Beatles studio album. Wow. So he went out and bought every other one and gave them to him. Ah. Yeah. Just one of the many times you'll see Yauk is looking out for his bandmates. At this point, Yauk was actually living a quadruple life. Yes, he was in the Beastie Boys. He was also working as a superintendent for a Brooklyn Heights apartment complex. (laughs) Presumably so he could live rent-free and he could fix almost anything. He was going to college, Bard College, actually, which is a liberal arts college in New York. However, that college endeavor wouldn't really last. He attended a total of two years before dropping out and deciding he wanted to pursue music. His other secret passion, rap. Ah. Aside from punk, Yauk was listening to more and more rap, funk, again, artists like Grandmaster Flash. Apparently, one of his favorite songs was the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. That's a great song. It was rumored that Yauk would memorize all of the lyrics, and then he would add his own lyrics along with the, with the record. <laughs> so this rap routine actually started creeping into the Beastie Boys live show. Between songs, Yauk would just get on the mic and start rapping. Horovitz and Diamond thought this was great, so the three of them started, and Schellenbach would get out from behind the drums and also rap, and it became kind of a novelty act. <laughs> so surprise you to hear it, they wouldn't go to hear songs like Egg Raid on Mojo. <laughs> I mean, surprise. But it's such a classic. I know. It's, it's timeless. They would go to see these Beastie Boys who would rap. It's about this time where Yauk thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to record some rap music? So the space for Rat Cage was no longer there, but Parsons had some recording equipment. And so the Beastie Boys would put together a 12-inch vinyl called Cookie Puss. The album... Wait, like the name of the thing from Carvel? And hold on to that thought, because I'm going to play the song before we we analyze it. So here is from 1983, The Beastie Boys with Cookie Puss. Mother got to call us for 
I guess I didn't bang the gong quite loudly enough. <laughs> From the 1983 12-inch vinyl release, Cookie Puss. So let's talk about what we've heard. I can't because I haven't ingested drugs. It's funny. You What, what was your first comment, LD? You said Cookie Puss. Like Carvel. Okay. So part of that you hear are a series of prank calls to local Carvel stores. Okay. Which they recorded and put over a beat. Okay. That's item one. There is some DJing, as you can hear. Yeah. The drums are obviously Kate Schellenbach. That's not a surprise. There are samples, though, and I don't know if you caught them. Oh. They sampled a Steve Martin comedy album. Uh, what was that part? Those little bits that you hear, like someone talking. Yeah. That's a Steve Martin comedy album. Okay. Yep. Weird. So that is really what went into the Cookie Puss EP. So when did they become good? Oh, we're getting there. <laughs> I'm sorry for anyone who's a big fan of uh, the BC Boys early work. Yes. I got to say, I'm a little shocked and shaken at what I'm hearing because I know what they become. And oh, it's yeah. like, it's pristine, polished, well-defined, and like iconic. This and um, is just and it um, doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting about this is a lot of people thought it was fun. So Cookie Puss became a request for the beastie boys so they had to find a way to perform it there are people who wanted to hear that <laughs> there are people who wanted to hear this wow. and it was wow it was probably the uh person who came up with the concept for crank yankers <laughs> yeah right the prank calls yes needless to say the cookie puss release would win the band their first big financial payout but not in the way you think there were several songs on the album including the title cookie puss bonus batter and Beastie Revolution. British Airways heard a sample from Beastie Revolution and decided to use it in one of their commercials because what? they figured oh, it's just a it's just a small band, you know, no one's going to care. Well, the Beastie Boys cared and they actually got a lawyer. They ended up winning 
$40,000 wow. from British Airways, which in today's money, just so you know, is about $104,000. Oh, wow. Yes. Big win. So they sued British Airways, got paid. I wonder if they used the Chewbacca defense. Nice. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. This album doesn't make any sense. This album doesn't make any sense. Chewbacca lives on indoor. <laughs> now, this allowed the boys to do a few things. Uh, first of all, it gave them the chance to get their own place. They actually rented out a living slash recording slash rehearsal place in Chinatown at 59 Christie Street. Adam Horowitz, however, would take his earnings to go purchase a new guitar. He had his eyes set on a Rickenbacker, but at the last minute, he picked up a Roland T-808 drum machine instead huh. and brought that back. So they're already moving in a different direction. They have the some of the equipment, but because Cookie Puss became so popular, they needed to add a DJ to their live shows. Enter DJ Double R, better known as Rick Rubin. Oh, wow. Rick Rubin, Frederick J. Rubin. Uh, this guy's a character, by the way. Fellow New Yorker. He was attending NYU at the time, trying to make ends meet as a DJ. He had a lot of classic rock records, and they... The story is that he won the Beastie Boys over by inviting them to his dorm room at NYU, which, by the way, NYU Radio, if you remember, was playing the Beastie Boys. Right. And he had a, quote, great setup that included a bubble machine. <gasps> bubble machines. They're just below confetti cannons. <laughs> now, it's largely believed that the, the real factor that brought them together was Ruben's taste in music. He loved hard rock. He loved classic rock. They kind of bonded in that sense. And he was their DJ for a while. So he would play their live shows. However, he would slowly phase himself out because, as the story you may know goes, he teamed up with a gentleman named Russell Simmons. Yep. And they founded... Def Jam. Def Jam Records, yep. Def Jam Records. Yep. Now, in 1984, the Beastie Boys were still playing gigs, but they didn't have an actual record deal. Ruben and Simmons saw these guys as potential signings to Def Jam, which, for the record at this point, was run out of their dorm room. Wow. They had a four-track recorder and a, a space. That was it. They decided to bring these boys on and market them as the first white rap group. So instantly, Rick Rubin saw dollar signs. He saw something that hasn't been done before. He could take these boys from New York, kind of repackage them, and get them out there. So he's almost envisioning them as kind of a novelty. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is really interesting because, okay, when you think of the Beastie Boys now, looking back, yeah, you think that's a rap group. But mm -hmm. remember, like, the first release that we really heard from the Beastie Boys in the mainstream was Fight for Your Right to Party, which was actually a hard rock song. Which, by the way, we're two years away from that. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, hard rock riff. I, I yeah. would say it's still it's still a rap delivery kind of sung over yeah. a, a sung over you know you know a, a big hard rock guitar sound yeah it's, yeah. Kind, it's kind of an anomaly yeah. but but you don't consider like you don't really like if you think about that song if you have to put it into a category you wouldn't necessarily gravitate toward rap it's rap because, rock. Yes, rap rock. Rap yeah. rock, but a couple, but a couple of songs on the first album, which I'm, I, we'll get to in due course, but a couple of them are like that. Yeah, and, and here's that that interesting thing is that Rick Rubin, you and when you hear what comes next, you can you can call him a lot of things. Stupid isn't one of them. Yeah, he was certainly he had this ear for classic rock. 
he saw the sort of rap growth and he saw the opportunity here. There was just one problem. And unfortunately, Rick Rubin thought the problem was Kate Schoenbach. Of all the things the Beastie Boys would grow to regret over the course of their career, they said this was near the top. Per Michael Diamond, Kate was the smartest out of all of us. She went to Sturvesson High School, which was a competitive magnet for math and science nerds. We all went to art schools, except for Horowitz, who went to Sidia School, which is a totally different program. Aside from book smarts, Kate was a skilled drummer. She was a good lyricist. She even had her own rap name, Mate. Yeah. Yeah. Good name. Yeah. But they were starting to bring in drum machines. And per Rick Rubin, this is a direct quote, he didn't like the sound of women rapping. Whoa. Take, take that. That's a quote. That's a quote. Uh-uh. So the terms of why Kate was dismissed from the band are still a little murky, but I think a little too obvious. In the Beastie Boys book, Kate writes, I immediately noticed they were wearing, this is when she met, she was actually called in August of 1984 to meet the boys at the area club. I immediately noticed they were wearing black and red Puma tracksuits, matching Puma sneakers with fat laces, and most ridiculously, do-rags. Someone told me Rick had bought the outfits. I immediately realized this was a tactical move to solid, sorry, I immediately realized this as a tactical move to solidify the band and distance me from them. Rick had flat out told me he didn't like the sound of women rapping so I knew I never stood a chance with him. So who do you think stepped up to deliver the death blow? Adam. Adam Yauch. He was sort of nominated from what I understand. Nobody wanted to do it. So Yauch broke the news to Kate. He said he was given the unenviable task of telling her about the new direction of the band. She thought the writing was on the wall. However, Yauch promised her that this was not the end. They would continue to make music together again. The biggest thing that hurt Kate the most was that she was losing her friends, as she put it in her book, in this book. It was hard for me to accept this assholian behavior from these nerdy boys who never overly sexualized me or any of the girls in our group. I can tell you more, but the way Kate writes it is so brilliant, and the book is so brilliant. It's the Beastie Boys book, and it's 550 pages, so it's a little overwhelming. But I do think out of all the chapters, Schellenbach's chapter stands out not only for its contents, but for its subtitle, which was Goodbye to You and Your Giant Inflatable Penis. But, <laughs> but more on that later. So hold that thought. But she used the word asholian. So, I mean, I feel like if that doesn't hook you, I don't know what does. Yeah, exactly. Well, she is the smartest one, right? She is the smartest one. In fact, Kate Schellenbach would go on to attend Hunter College, which is actually my mother's alma mater. Yeah. St. Joan. And as we know, in the 90s, she would found the band Luscious Jackson. She would also play drums for the Coasters, the Luna Chicks, and the Indigo Girls. Oh, wow. And produce several albums. She would be romantically involved with the bass player for the Breeders, Josephine Wiggs. The two were actually featured in a piece in The Advocate. And so needless to say, it looks like it's a dark time for Kate, but the next decade would be very kind to her. And... She is always, and the boys consider her, a founding member of the band to this day. awesome. Speaking of their close friends, at the Danceteria, Horowitz would run into Dave Parsons again from the Rat Cage. He thought it was Dave Parsons because it was a woman 
who sounded like Dave Parsons. Ah. As it turned out, Dave had separated from his partner, Kathy, and he was starting to embrace his gender identity. Dave preferred to be Daisy, and he told them that that was when he was most comfortable. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. New York during, in the early 80s? Yeah, but that, like you think about what people are dealing with now, you know, it's only now becoming kind of an acceptable thing to be transgender. Yeah. And so to have that in the 80s, like how liberating that must feel, but how dangerous that must be at that time. Yeah, so I think it was a big moment for Dave Parsons and, and for the band. Because we're not that far separated from the Stonewall riots. No, we're about in, we're in 84, 85. Yeah, yeah. so I think that's about 11, 12 years, I think. I think so, yeah. Something like that. Forgive us if I don't have that date. I don't exactly know yeah. the date of the Stonewall riots, but yeah. I mean, you're not that that far removed from that. Correct. Now you had the Beastie Boys as you know them. Ad-Rock, Mike D, and MCA. They really started working rap lyrics along with hard rock riffs and beats. They all had their vocal style. Horowitz was, of course, kind of screechy and whiny. Diamond had kind of a brassy tone, but you know Adam Yak. Some said he sounded like a 40-year-old black guy. Mike Diamond called him the Bobby Womack of rap, <laughs> which I think is great. By 1985, the Beastie Boys would release another single entitled She's On It. Now, that's the song we're going to close out with because I think it's going to be the most like the Beastie Boys you know. As I said, the start, you may be wondering, where is this all going? Yep. But it is evolving into something you will recognize. This single was a sign of things to come and the image that started as a joke and would ultimately finish as a regret the beastie boys would embody the words of at that time a young adam yauk who said you must understand one basic fact about the beastie boys we do anything we want so before we go to our final song i want to open for our first of our roundtable discussions for the series and we'll just go around the group here tell me who is your favorite member of the beastie boys who resonates with you how about you deuce why don't you step up to the plate Okay, um, I don't have a super strong feeling about this one way or the other, mm -hmm. and most of my preference is based on, you know, my memories of from my youth, because, yeah, once you get a little older, they're just kind of there, and, you know, making good music and stuff, and, you know, when you're really kind of taken by their image, it's, it's, it's earlier, you know, when I was very young, they were considered a very cool group to, you know, that's, we're doing a completely different genre of music than our last series, but the, the common thread is that there was a, a mega cool factor with both, oh, yeah. obviously. Um, so my, my preference is because of being a little kid and starting to find my own music and who are these guys? And they're having a food fight on, <laughs> on a video with big rock guitar, which I was already starting to like. So and they're spraying beer on each other and yeah. they're spraying beer on each other and stuff. So my preference is based on more childhood memories than anything else, but I'll go with Ad-Rock. The Lumberjack DJ Ad-Rock. All right, good choice. For a couple of reasons. One, the snotty attitude that he presented in, in <laughs> every sense, and I mean in terms of facial contortions, his vocal delivery, yeah. just the, the attitude he projected, the sneering, high-pitched kind of, you know, <laughs> right up in the camera, pointing his finger at it and stuff. And of course, also now he played guitar. 
Yes, he did. And 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 I, I you know happen to like guitar, so that's that would be another one for him. And then also he he dated Molly Ringwald, mm-hmm. so I guess that probably made him seem kind of cool when I was younger. He's cavorting with attractive celebrities and um and the like. So I mean, mine is it's my attachment is largely superficial. It's not really based on well, you know, because he contributed blah blah blah, or he it's like. No, he just, he seemed like a snotty little punk. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought it was cool when I was little. So I guess that could probably have stuck with me. Yeah. And it plays to that image. Like I said, it starts as an image, becomes a joke, and then actually ultimately becomes something the Beastie Boys want to separate from in later in life. But yeah, he played that image to a T. I mean, you, you bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. Sure. LD? I have to go the same. Ooh. The King Ad Rock. There you go. And I, I will... I will say it lyrically as to why. So believe when I say I'm no better than you, except when I rap. So I guess it ain't true. (laughs) I love that lyric. He delivers it with uh, such zeal and honesty that I have to go with him. Now, that being said, Mm -hmm. I also have a love for Adam, specifically for something that we're going to get into. And I guess it's no spoiler because people can just look this up. But he actually had a hand in producing one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point that 10 years after the documentary was released, I actually got to go to a screening with the director of the documentary. And I still fangirled and completely cried. <laughs> the documentary is called Dear Zachary. I suggest everyone watch it, but I also suggest that no one watch it unless you want your heart torn out from your face and just run over by a semi truck. So for that, I do love MCA because he did have a hand in producing some really interesting content, especially on the documentary front. So I am split between those, but I definitely have to say The King is probably my favorite. All right. For the first time ever on Rock and Roll Heaven, and this is before I give my response, we have a write-in. We have a contributor. So... When I let my friend Mark know we were doing an episode on Adam Yauch, he was thrilled because Mark and I used to karaoke Beastie Boys out here in LA. It was our go-to choice. So we spent hours listening to them, discussing this very topic. And there's one part he would always take, because there were two of us. We each took a respective Beastie Boy and then sort of divided up the third. The part he took every time and knew in and out, hot and cold, was Ad-Rock. So his favorite pick for favorite Beastie Boys, Ad Rock. And by the way, my friend Mark will have write-ins for all of our series of discussions at the end of each episode. He's going to contribute from the state of Florida. So thank you, Mark. So we've got three votes for Ad Rock. I think my choice is pretty obvious, um, being Adam Yauch. But I am going to throw in an honorable mention because I feel like a special award is in order. And that one goes to Mike Diamond. Here's a little spoiler for our next episode, which again, you're not going to want to miss because this is the one where we get more into that image that the Beastie Boys get into. Some of the songs you know, one of the greatest albums of all time and a lot of debauchery and antics. So here's a little teaser. Rick Rubin actually wanted to kick Mike D out. Really? What? Yep, he, he, he claimed that he was the weakest rapper. Now, if you listen to the early stuff, he kind of is. You have MCA, who's very distinct. You have Ad Rock, who, as you pointed out, very original, got the image. Yeah. Mike D was just kind of hanging. That doesn't happen, as we all know. 
But if you listen to, start with, I'm encouraging you to do this, start with License to Ill and listen to Mike D all the way up through their final album, Hot Sauce Committee Part 2. He becomes so strong that I would argue by the last album, he's one of the best rappers on that album. I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm, I'm speaking more from a personality, lyrical, mm-hmm. and content-wise mm-hmm. standpoint. Right. Um, but isn't it funny how things that almost happen, people that do get expelled, people that uh, almost get thrown out of a band and don't think, think if they hang on to their drummer and they ditch MCA. Yeah. It's a how different things might, do, do, do we, are we even talking about them now? Sort of, sort of like going back to our last series, Ted Templeman wanted to fire David Lee Roth as they were recording Van Halen one. Yeah. Yeah. And replace him with Sammy Hancock, <laughs> oddly. Which is bananas, yeah. Um, which is crazy. But but then you just think, well, but then is is anything the same? Is it the same if he gets rid of MCA, even though if he thinks at that point he's the weak link? What if they don't get rid of their very talented drummer, who you said is also a very good lyricist and all that stuff? I, you know, who be, knows how things turn out? It would be completely different. Like, yeah. you, you don't, you don't actually know. And it's, I'm, you know, I'm, the thing is, I'm glad that we're here because I know what is to come. I, I just, and, and then I should make a stand for I, what I assume is going to be maybe a little bit of blowback from our audience if they do like this early stuff is guys, it's just a matter of taste. Mm. Really if, you, if you, if you, if you liked it and you want to fight us about it, just direct the emails to me. <laughs> I am a sensitive. I don't care. They suck. <laughs> But, but you're also, it's also at that point, they have completely shifted musically from, from being kind of a punk band to doing rap. So it's their, it's, it's their first stab at it. Just for, just for starters, rap itself. Now it, it had been present, I guess, in New York and in certain cities at the street level, but not in the overall public consciousness. So the sound itself is of, of the entire genre is still kind of being shaped right now. I um, mean, you could, you could listen to, you know, we're sitting there thinking like, Oh, this, the, the, it's just a generic beat and it's a simplistic and it's like, yeah, but a lot of rap was then we, 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 it, it, it had a long way to come as an art form just in general sampling did because sampling used to be kind of messy. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's like, okay, Rapper's Delight. It's a classic. It, it's whatever. It's like, yeah, and it's it's a guy rapping over uh, Good Times. <laughs> By you, Sheik. You want to know a, a little fun fact? Fun fact! Fun uh, fact! The first rap video ever shown on MTV. Does anyone know what that was? I think I do. Was it Rapture? It was Rapture. It was Blondie. No kidding. Yes. Yes, well, because back at that point, MTV largely did not play black artists, almost studiously avoided doing so. So it, it would have to have been somebody somebody like that. We're going to get into that in our next artist that we're going to do because yep. he had a fantastic interview yeah, based yeah. on Oh, that. it's beautiful. Oh, it's it's a beautiful. And I know you've posted it on our socials before. <laughs> it, it, it is wondrous. It is wondrous. But to the point that one of the – one I think one of the first black artists MTV played was Herbie Hancock, his song Rocket – and it's because you, other than his face on a black and white TV screen, very briefly, you don't ever see him in the video. Yeah. 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 You see all the animatronic stuff moving around, you know, which was kind of cool for the time, but you almost don't see him. Right. So that, that's how that got played. But in, yeah, anyway. 
And I'm glad you brought up your socials because we put it to you, the listeners. Who, First of all, who is your favorite Beastie Boy? Is there one that stands out to you? And also, again, is this your genre of music? What do you think of that shift from punk to to rap so before we do our final song let's do our socials our goodbyes and we'll leave you with something that sounds like the boys that you know yeah if you guys think that we're doing an awesome job here we are actually going to be restructuring our patreon to give you guys not just like shout outs and choices but we are actually going to be uh doing some really fun stuff with our patreon and that actually comes from tj to the deuce who is helping restructure that which uh, so if you guys think we're doing an awesome job, want to eventually be able to unlock that content, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can, which has to be one of the, that has, that might be the biggest head scratcher of a thing that's happened since we started. Hey, <laughs> my, my dumbass hillbilly brother had an idea about something high tech. <laughs> so, so, so wait, who's the other hillbilly? I don't know. The, but uh, we're still missing them. <laughs> it's, it's I don't know. I can't laugh at that because I giggle too much, apparently. Unsolved hillbilly <laughs> mysteries. Uh, our Twitter is Rock and Roll LT. You can find us on Instagram, Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. Still haven't updated it in two years. And it's probably never going to happen. So <laughs> just give up. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. If I've said any of that too fast, it will be in the show notes. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. Woo! Woo! All right. Thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. Please make sure to check us out next week where we continue our series on Adam MCA Yauk. And from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven to all of you out there, have a fantastic week. Don't do anything dumb. Have a good one. DJ, say goodbye. Should I do um like human beatbox to go out or just tell them goodbye? I... You know, uh, you, do, you whatever, do you, man. Do, do whatever feels right. Nobody wants to hear that. Bye, everybody. <laughs> And with that, folks, thanks for listening. Again, got some three more parts coming up on Adam. Great stuff. And we'll leave you with a single of the Beastie Boys from 1985. Here is She's On It.
presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You used to associate crickets with silence. But since you bought a house in the suburbs, you know crickets hate silence. If any other creature realized rubbing its legs together made a piercing high-pitched noise, they might think, maybe I won't do that. Constantly. All night long. Luckily, you can save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. Now that's something to make noise about. Just not constantly. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 